from WCPB Channel 5 Podcasts and Sports Center 5. It's Take 5 with Chris Gasper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Take 5 Podcast. Today's guest, Doug Kide of Nesson and Nesson.com. He's one of my favorite Patriots writers. We break down the state of the Patriots as they enter the offseason here before training camp. He has a really interesting take on what Mac Jones and Joe Burrow have in common. Also, Cam Newton, why is he still here, and how much longer will he be the Patriots quarterback? Doug and I disagree a little bit on two tight end sets. The Patriots invested heavily in Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry. Will that pay off? I'm not so sure, but Doug certainly thinks so. Also, Doug feels pretty confident about this Patriots team being much better than last year's team. And finally, minicamp was the send-off for Belichick aide-de-camp, Ernie Adams. And I feel like one Ellen Fleming, the producer of this podcast, actually has a lot in common with Ernie Adams, who was kind of the man behind the man when it came to the Patriots. Yeah, me and Ernie Adams have so much in common. It's just ridiculous. From Yeah, just from everything. From, from um, bo- the time both of you spent on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, our time at, on and Wall at, Street. And at Phillips Andover Academy. Our, yeah, our football knowledge, our football totally. prowess. Um, definitely like staying behind the scenes enough so we're never the ones held responsible if anything goes wrong <laughs> um, that's very key and I always you know I've always respected that about Ernie Adams <laughs> I've always said that Ernie is Belichick's Belichick he's this football genius that Belichick leans on to look like a football genius mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's a lot like this podcast because really I'm just sort of like a front a facade a facade a yes. face yes a face you know sort of a puppet And there was a good example of this this week because I was really excited over this email I got praising one of the last podcasts we did with Joe Castiglione. And I was so excited that somebody emailed me and I went to tell Ellen about it. And then I realized that I am just Ellen's pawn. (laughs) So this email account has been attached to your email account for the past, I honestly want to say about six months. So if you just scroll down in your inbox, it would have been there. I had the IT department just automatically put it on. Didn't ask, just did it. Thought you would have noticed, you didn't. So, you know, that's where we are. And that's okay, you know, (laughs) that's okay. That's why I'm here. All of that is to say, what will Bill Belichick be without Ernie Adams by his side? It's going to be interesting. I mean, just to go back to this email, though, I was so excited because it was so positive. And I was like, Ellen, nice. And I I was like, Ellen, we got this great email. And she's like, I know. I sent that to you. Yeah, I know. I could have pretended that I didn't see it. That would have been the real Ernie Adams thing. Yeah, to do. The real, right. The real Machiavellian thing to do would have been to just pretend that you didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. But you're actually pulling the strings yeah. behind the scenes. So I feel like you and Ernie, you and Ernie have a lot in common. I think you could rock the Ernie glasses, too. I would love to rock the Ernie glasses. And I wish that we also had our bank account in common. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, we don't, which is why I will not be leaving anytime soon. Yeah, so Ernie Adams is leaving, but Doug Kide, he's not going anywhere. He's next. Hey, Boston, let's talk sports. WCVB Sports Center 5, the contact. Source at MLB tells me expert analysis. That's going to be a major point of contention. On air. I talked to a high-ranking source. And exclusive articles free on the WCVB app. Duke Castiglione, Chris Gasper, Bob Halloran, and special correspondent Mike Once Lynch. Again, the strongest team covering Boston's teams. The only game in town. WCVB Sports Center 5 on Boston's news leader. All right. Now, as promised, we're joined by Doug Hyde from Nesson and Nesson.com, one of the best Patriots reporters out there. Doug, thanks for joining us today on the Take 5 podcast. Absolutely. Anytime. I appreciate you having me. So let's dive right in. 
Patriots just wrapped up mandatory minicamp. They wrapped up the offseason program for veterans, 13 on-field practices. They weren't able to have this last year due to COVID. What stood out to you from the sessions that the media was able to watch about this team? Then that you have to start with the quarterback situation and really who impressed the most, who stood out the most. And ultimately, this almost sounds like a cop-out, but what stood out to me the most was that None of them really rose above the fold that much. I kind of thought they all sort of looked the same. And I'm not sure if that's that fair to Cam Newton, since I don't think that passing camps are really his best chance to stand out and impress. Half of his game is, you know, mobility and athleticism, what he can do uh, with the ball in his hands. And you're not seeing that during these mini camp or OTA sessions. You're probably not even really going to see it in training camp. You might not see that until the preseason. But Chris, I mean, you've been at so many of these practices, Patriots practices over the years. Tom Brady was always far and away the best quarterback on the field, no matter who else was out there. I just wasn't getting that sense out here this year. And I kind of thought that Jarrett Stidham looked just as good as Mac Jones and Cam Newton and Brian Hoyer. And it was all just kind of the same to me. So what's interesting about that is, and I wasn't able to view the mini camps because they're still under COVID protocols. It's one media member per outlet, Mm -hmm. Channel 5. Obviously, we need the video. So we're sending a videographer. But what's interesting to me about that is I'm not sure the Patriots look at that, Doug, and say that's a bad thing. I think they look at it and say, based on their offseason and spending more than $370 million and $175 million in guarantees, I've been saying they've tried to invert the model. For all those years with Brady, particularly the back half of his career, I think that their model was the quarterback will elevate the team and elevate the talent around him. After last year and going seven and nine, they know they don't have a quarterback who can do that. So now you invert the model and you expect the team to elevate the quarterback. So I wonder if they feel like even if they get basically slightly upgraded quarterback play, similar to what they got last year, but because they've invested so much in the roster, if they feel like that's good enough to be back in the playoffs. I think it very well could be. I mean, you look at Cam Newton's weapons from last season and it was pretty embarrassing (laughs) when Demir bird is leading your team and, and, you know, wide receiver snaps and Jacoby Myers passes Nikhil Harry in week five. And then suddenly is leading the team and receiving by the end of the season, Ryan Izzo and Jakob Johnson were heavily involved in the offense. Yeah, it was ugly last year. And I think that all the pieces, pieces that they added, even if this isn't, you know, still one of the top, 10, you know, pass catching cores in the NFL or anything like that. It's a significant improvement from last season, just because of all the money that they spent at wide receiver and tight end. So absolutely. I think that, you know, you can take last season, they went seven and nine with what they had. And that's even before getting to the defense and the defense was ravaged as well at defensive tackle and linebacker and everything like that. So I think that you're right. I think that they did build up to make the quarterback better rather than counting on the quarterback to make all the pieces around him better. So I really don't know who does wind up with this quarterback job in week one. It's probably going to be Cam Newton. Mac Jones obviously would be the second closest option. Then I do think that, you know, if something crazy happens, maybe Jared Sidham could take the job one way or the other. But regardless, I don't think that you're going to see a significant difference in quarterback play. It really does depend on everything that's around them. You mentioned Mac Jones. There's so much intrigue around him. He's the highest drafted offensive player in the Bill Belichick era. First time Bill's used a first round pick on a quarterback. 
He's a little bit of a polarizing prospect. I've probably been harder on him than most, you know, calling him Jack Jones, which, you know, to me doesn't mean he's terrible, but I, I sort of put him in the game manager, Andy Dalton sort of category. I think that's maybe his ceiling, or really, if you get really lucky, he's Kirk Cousins, who's a decent quarterback, but uh, he's not a guy that I think elevates your team. I think Kirk Cousins is a guy, if you put the right pieces around him, you have the right team, you can absolutely win with him, but he's not going to elevate. What have you seen from Mac Jones? so far and what kind of fit do you think he is for the Patriots system? I, I would say that immediately what stood out to me was that it looked like he belonged. It looked like he fit in. He wasn't playing like a rookie. I thought that he was right there. Like I was saying earlier with Cam Newton and Jared Sid and Brian Hoyer, these guys who have been in the NFL, uh, you know, in Cam and Brian Hoyer's situations for a very long time. So I thought that that was really promising off the start. Uh, he certainly had some stronger practices. He had some weaker practices, but that's what you expect out of rookies. But once again, I compare this situation really to the other rookies that we've seen come through with the Patriots, Jared Siddham, um, Jimmy Garoppolo, Ryan Mallett, some of the other young quarterbacks who have been around here, Danny Etling. And I do think that, you know, he was among the upper echelon of those players. I wouldn't say that he was significantly better than them in minicamp uh, and OTAs, but I do think that, like I said, he belonged. I also do think that he will wind up being a good fit for the Patriots system. And I know that there's uh, from some of the more national outlets, some people were questioning that saying, you know, he was running a lot of RPOs at Alabama. The Alabama offense doesn't necessarily look exactly like the Patriots offense, but I think that the Patriots can mold Mac Jones to be what they want out of a quarterback to be that cerebral quarterback making fast decisions doesn't necessarily need to show off some massive arm strength by throwing it downfield that often. So I think that from a skill set perspective, he really does fit what the Patriots look for in a quarterback. That being said, it could take some time. I think that even just, you know, it's it's been talked about a lot, but if you look at Mac Jones, he kind of looks a little bit on the slighter side. Uh, obviously, he's not a, a rocked up athlete or anything like that, but I think that once you get him in an NFL weight room and training system, that arm strength can improve. Everything around him can improve a little bit. And I do sort of feel like he was unfairly maligned only because he was rumored to be the number three overall pick. If that had never happened, I think that we might be looking at Mac Jones in a little bit more of a positive light. If he had always been rumored to be the 15th overall pick, whatever it was, I don't think that he would have been criticized nearly as heavily if you weren't comparing him to Trey Lance and Justin Fields and all these other guys. I think that he was also in a strong quarterback class. If you throw him even in last year's quarterback class, when Tua was dealing with the hip injury, Justin Herbert, everyone was picking him apart. Really, if you look at them statistically, and even really from skill set perspective, Mac Jones and Joe Burrow, aren't worlds apart. Mac Jones is just kind of a, a slightly poorer man's Joe Burrow. So you look at it through that lens, it might be a little bit more positive. Yeah. What's interesting for me about Mac Jones, there's a couple of things. One, I think that you're right in terms of he does fit what they want. He is cerebral. That was his greatest skill set at Alabama, his mind. And you hear the stories about the fact that now that Bill O'Brien, the former Patriots offensive coordinator and coach of the Houston Texans, has gone to Nick Saban and Alabama, who I jokingly say is the NFL's 33rd team. Now that he's gone there to learn that offense, who was teaching him the offense? Mac Jones. The interesting thing, though, with Mac Jones to me is that if that's your greatest skill set, when you're trying to step into an offense, 
that is so intricate, like the Patriots offense and has 20 plus years of institutional knowledge to it, that might actually slow him down a little bit because he's not going to have that command. And I thought that when we spoke to him during minicamp, that he seemed to me a little overwhelmed. And not that that's a red flag because you sort of expect that, but I think it might take a little longer than people think for him to get out there and be confident and have the command of the offense because that's how he's going to beat you is checking into the right play, knowing where to go with the ball pre-snap, and it might take a little while longer for him to get there and be able to do that. I In those situations, like, like you, you were talking about with Mac Jones and feeling like he might have been a little bit overwhelmed, I, I always do think it's interesting to talk to Patriots' young offensive players just to hear what they're saying about the offense. And I, I feel like I'm like a, I don't know, a psychologist or a psychiatrist <laughs> or something like that when I do this. But with some players, you can tell by their approach that it's not just not really going to work. And then yeah. with other players, I feel like you can tell that it's going to work. And obviously, this isn't the best example because he got hurt after one year. But with Malcolm Mitchell in 2016, for example, and I'm getting kind of way off the rails here. No, but no. You, could, you could tell that he understood what needed to be done and that he wasn't saying this is easy. He just knew what he had to do. And I actually felt the same way about Jacoby Myers in 2020. He seemed to be taking a realistic approach to the Patriots offense. He didn't seem overwhelmed. He wasn't saying, oh yeah, football's football. This will be easy to learn. And to some degree with Mac Jones and his analogy with the buckets, the two buckets. he was putting the bad in one bucket and the good in another bucket, I did feel like that was at least him being realistic about that there are a lot of things that he's filling up a bucket with that he needs to improve and that he can transfer what he does learn into that good bucket. And we'll see if this winds up working out or not, but I, I, I'd say that it's at least good that he's taking a realistic approach to the Patriots offense rather than just assuming that everything's going to be easy. But like you said, yeah, the Patriots offense is so complex that I wouldn't necessarily say that his intelligence does put him at a distinct advantage because it would be really easy for him to pick up a a simplistic offense. Or like a Kyle Shanahan system. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is still definitely going to take some work, no matter how smart the quarterback is. I totally agree with you on that. And I think just, again, you don't want to read too much into it, but you're right. We do play psychologists. I think he's a guy that's been successful in his career because he's gone on the field and felt like he had a mastery of what was going to happen. And I think it will just take a little longer for him to get to that point with this offense. And I think that's an advantage for Cam Newton because it's Cam Newton's second year in this offense. And as you mentioned, look, Cam Newton doesn't necessarily have to have full mastery or command of the offense, as you said, to make plays. And we saw that last year with the 12 touchdowns. That's why I think Cam is still the guy at the beginning of the season, at least for the first four or five games. That being said, I want to ask you this. Why is Cam Newton ultimately still here? I mean, you look at his performance last year, the eight touchdown passes, the 10 interceptions, the Patriots tied for the fewest touchdown passes in the NFL, and four of those came from wide receivers. So why did Bill Belichick bring him back? What did he see in Cam that said, you know what, not only does this guy deserve a second chance because he was a good soldier, but I still think he can help our football team. I think what that ultimately comes down to is the Patriots needed someone there. They couldn't yes. go into the draft with Jarrett Simmons and Brian Hoyer. Again, that just wasn't going to be an ideal situation. So they they needed someone. And I think that Bill Belichick looked at the other options and said, all right, these guys are getting paid X amount of money. This guy is going to take 
X amount of draft picks to acquire. Yeah, Cam Newton might not be quite as good at that as them, but the difference between paying Cam Newton three and a half million dollars versus paying, you know, a first round pick or a second round pick, um, you know, for for quarterback X or quarterback Y. I just don't think that that difference was significant enough. So ultimately, I don't think that it's supporting Cam Newton and believing in Cam Newton that he can be that guy. I think that we saw that from the contract that he received. I just think that they needed someone. He was the guy who already had knowledge of the offense and he wasn't that far behind the other options. And I don't think that the Patriots were committed to taking a quarterback in the first round. We saw that they hung back and let Mac Jones fall to them at number 15. They didn't move up. So they easily could have taken Davis Mills in the second round or Kellen Mond or one of these other quarterbacks. But so I think that they were confident enough in Cam Newton. And that's, I think what, like what you said, I, why I think that he probably will start the season this year, but I wouldn't necessarily say that re-signing him when they did is a big, you know, confidence boost or shot of confidence in Cam Newton or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, the old, the old kiss of death, the vote of confidence. Right. Uh, what's interesting to me, uh, the other thing that's interesting, I think, worked in Cam's favor is that he still has swag. He still has drip. He still has sway with players in the NFL. Like, guys still look at Cam Newton like he's the MVP from 2015. And I think that helps when you're trying to recruit guys in free agency. Now, look, first and foremost, it was about the money. I think Hunter Henry basically admitted that to us. And here's a guy who said, you know, I want to play in a place where the quarterback is good and he ends up coming here and it's sort of about the money. And you get that. And I understand that. But I think they felt like Cam Newton had value as a recruiter, as an attraction. And that's something they didn't have anymore without Tom Brady. And also coming off a losing season, I remember talking to Robert Kraft in 2009 at the owner's owners meetings in Dana Point, California. And he talked about something that they believed in called brand equity. The idea that guys would take less to come play, not just for the Patriots, but for Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and have the chance to win a ring. And, The Patriots, I think, don't have that right now. And you saw that in free agency where they had to spend all of that money. Now, Doug, we used to sort of mock these teams that went out and spent money like this. And they're kind of like drunken sailors and they're just filling every hole with like top free agents. But it's a little different now with the Patriots. This approach they took this offseason, did you like it? Did you not like it? And ultimately, what do you feel are the chances that it I don't want to say turnaround, but that it gets the Patriots back in the playoffs this year. It's almost more about whether less about whether I liked it or didn't like it. It was almost more necessary. They they went seven and nine last season. They had $60 million to spend and they kind of had to spend it. You know, otherwise if they had $40 million right now, Patriots fans would be losing their minds. And I don't (laughs) think that Bill Belichick is making moves with Patriots fans in mind, but he knew that he needed to improve the team. And if it took overspending on a player like Nelson Aguilar to do it, then that's kind of what they had to do this offseason. So, I mean, to answer the question, yeah, I did like what they did. I think that this approach, spending all of that money, trying to improve your team through free agency, when clearly they've suffered through the draft over the last few years, and this was required for them to do. They weren't, you know, re-upping all these draft picks that they were taking in 2015, 16, and 17 point. because no one was worthy of doing that. Um, so I do feel like it was a necessary evil for them to do. And going back to your point about Cam Newton, I also, I think that that was a, a, a big factor in getting some of these guys. And I actually wrote about that before free agency that, hey, Cam Newton 
might actually attract some free agents. I know that a lot of some people kind of laughed at that. It's like, well, it's Cam Newton. He was terrible last year, but it was like, I don't think the players look at it that way. They do still view him as that 2015 MVP. And a lot of the younger players in the league grew up admiring, watching Cam Newton. Yeah, watch him do the Superman. The oh, absolutely. In college, <laughs> in commercials, just yeah. everything that goes along with Cam Newton. I think that this was really the only way they could really approach the offseason yeah, you're right. And it is the quick fix. I mean, I, I like what they did. You know, I know it's it's uncharacteristic for them. It was an, uh, an uncharacteristic offseason, obviously, with COVID, trying to take advantage of that. But I did think you mentioned ownership. It was interesting that Robert Kraft, who shelled out all that money when he did speak with us, basically yeah. said, look, you look at all the teams that are good, they build through the draft. So this is a little bit of a patch job. They know they need to be better in the draft. I, I want to sort of cap the quarterback conversation with this. I was a little surprised that the Patriots didn't go to the mat and ultimately pull the trigger on Jimmy Garoppolo. I know Jimmy was willing to come back here. He was interested in it. I think that there was an opportunity there to do a deal with Kyle Shanahan. I think what it came down to was the Patriots were asking Jimmy to take a pay cut and he didn't want to do it. And when I listened to what Bill Belichick has said in the past about Jimmy Garoppolo in terms of it looks exactly the same in practice as it does with Tom Brady, the fact he still stayed in touch with him and congratulated him, this was a guy he really believed in. So if you believe that this guy can make it look like Tom Brady, then why wouldn't you just go to the mat for him, do the compensation and pay him the $24, 25000000 million this year? Because to me, that that would have been the cherry on top of the Sunday that would have taken the Patriots from 7-9 and nine to we're a Super Bowl contender again. I almost feel like it, it was also to a certain degree of Bill Belichick kind of playing chicken with Kyle Shanahan, where Kyle Shanahan wanted more maybe than Jimmy Garoppolo was worth and Bill Belichick thought that he could get him for less than what Kyle Shanahan was, was putting out there and John Lynch to a certain degree as well. Um, I do think that it probably did also come down to a potential pay cut for Jimmy Garoppolo and that he wouldn't want to take that. They would have been a little bit up against the cap if they had done that. And there is some cap uncertainty in the future. If they had taken on that $25 million cap hit, they just have no idea what the cap is going to look like next year. And they had already backloaded all of these contracts to fit them all under this year's cap and, you know, to, to figure it out for a year's future, which kind of complicates matters as well. At the very minimum, they're ha- they'll have, I think like $19 million in cap space next year. So if they had taken on Jimmy Garoppolo and expected to pay him, another $25 million next year, then they would have had to kind of readjust some things and figure some things out. But I'm with you. I fully expected them to trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, but I do think it was kind of that game of, of cat and mouse between Bill Belichick and Kyle Shanahan. And I actually think that the rumors of Mac Jones at number three overall were potentially tied into those trade conversations yeah. between the Patriots and Jimmy Garoppolo, because the Patriots didn't want Justin Fields. I don't think the Patriots were very intrigued by Trey Lance. I think that if one of those top two quarterbacks weren't going to be coming to the Patriots, then they wanted Mac Jones. So for the 49ers to put it out there that, hey, yeah, we're going to we're gonna take <laughs> Mac Jones number three overall. Like, you guys are going to be stuck with Davis Mills in the second round. You better give us that second round pick or first round pick or whatever it was for Jimmy Garoppolo. I do kind of think that all of those things are tied together. And then when it came down to it, Bill Belichick, called Kyle Shanahan's bluff and said, all right, take Mac Jones number three overall. And then they didn't. And the Patriots still got the guy that they ultimately wanted. So I think they would be in a better situation this year if they had Jimmy Garoppolo, but for the future, if they think that Mac Jones could 
be the same type of player, then it works out better monetarily for them this way. So let me ask you this, uh, you know, your opinion, not not what you think the Patriots would do. And you're dead on about Justin Fields. That was smoke and mirrors. They, I can tell you for a fact they were not interested in him. Yeah. Would you rather have Jimmy Garoppolo and you have to pay him the $25 million and give up a second round pick so you might not have Christian Barmore? Or what they ended up doing with Mac Jones and Christian Barmore. And I'll say I would rather have Jimmy because he's already taken a team to a Super Bowl. And you believed in him that much that you were ready to move on from Tom Brady. And I'll also just say quickly, I think Bill got a little bit caught in what I said before about brand equity, which is there used to be an alternate market for the Patriots. Look, the reality is if Sam Darnold gets a second round pick, then Jimmy Garoppolo gets a second round pick. That's just the going rate for these quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a house. Do you want the house or not? The market is inflated. You're dead on. But if you want one of these guys, that's what you have to pay. I'll answer my own question. I would rather have Jimmy G. That's just me. It's so tough because the injuries with Jimmy Garoppolo obviously play a factor. Then again, they would have had Cam Newton as a backup quarterback, and you can't really ask for a, a better backup quarterback than Cam Newton. It's it's so tough. I So I guess in this situation, then they would take an offensive lineman or a linebacker sure. or something like that with a first-round pick that they would have taken, right? Yeah, probably. I guess I probably would have gone with the other first-round pick and Jimmy Garoppolo just because I do think that Jimmy Garoppolo – is a little bit underrated at this point. If you look at some of the advanced stats that uh, you know go out there, Jimmy Garoppolo, when he's been healthy, he's been a top 12, top 10 quarterback. Um, then again, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. But like I said, you've got the backup option in Cam Newton. Certainly in 2021, they would have been stronger with a combination of Jimmy Garoppolo and Cam Newton. Um, I might wind up looking dumb about this. But yeah, I guess the first round pick plus Jimmy Garoppolo certainly would have made them better in the immediate. And that's really what matters the most, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. I just like, again, not to be repetitive, but if you believe that much in Jimmy Garoppolo, that you were willing to move off of Tom Brady potentially for him, uh, I would, that means you think he's like an all-time quarterback, or at the least you think you can win a Super Bowl with him. So I would have made that move. Uh, Let me ask you about the biggest story of training camp. And this switches us to the other side of the ball. We go from quarterback to cornerback, (laughs) Stefan Gilmore. A no-show for mandatory minicamp. They adjusted his contract last year. You and others have pointed out they basically gave him an advance. It wasn't a raise. The money came out of this year, and that's why the base salary is so low this year. What do you think happens with this, Doug? And do you think when they show up for training camp in late July, I think it's the 29th is the first practice, do you think he's on the field? I think they figure it out. I think that ultimately the Patriots are probably playing this pretty smart with Stephon Gilmore, where they probably had a pretty solid idea that Stefan Gilmore wasn't going to show up to minicamp without a pay adjustment, but they also kind of had to see, right. They had to make sure that that was going to be the case, that he wasn't just going to show up on his own without a pay raise. So ultimately I think they figure it out. I think the Patriots knew this was coming. I think Stefan Gilmore knew this was coming. The Patriots just needed Stefan Gilmore to prove it to them that he would actually do this because he didn't do it last year. He showed up for, for training camp. He went through all through the beginning of the season. What about that personal day he took though in training camp? Well, he did take, yeah, he did take that personal (laughs) leave in training camp, but I think that, yeah, that was obviously uh, pretty interesting. I'd say that just him showing up was probably a good enough sign for them. They could figure something out. This one pushes the issue a little bit more, but even just from Devin McCourty's comments that, 
yeah, Gilly's still a part of the team. We're all still, still talking to him. And McCordy was really like, yeah, when he shows up, he'll be fine. That's kind of the sense of the situation that I've got as well, that it's, it's not an unsalvageable situation, that this will probably be a pretty easy fix. And the Patriots have $15 million in cap space to figure it out. I don't think the Patriots look at Stefan Gilmore as a $7 million player. I think that they do obviously like they did last year, view him as more of a 13, $14 million player. So it really won't take that much to get those sides to come together and, and figure something out, whether it is simply a pay raise or whether it is an extension into years in the future, which I think Bill Belichick might be a little more hesitant to do just because of Gilmore's age and the fact that he dealt with some injuries last year. He had the knee injury and he had the torn quad at the end of the year. Yeah, great point on the torn quad. I think a lot of us are sort of forgetting he's coming off that injury. I think I agree with you. I think it too make, makes too much sense. It behooves both sides to get a deal done. Stephon Gilmore is underpaid, but his salary cap hit is high at $16.265 million, which is the highest on the team. Do You can do the ghost years thing. You can do a lot of right. different things here. They should work it out. The one interesting bit of history to me is that the agent here is a very good agent, Jason Shayett, and it's been a long time, and they've done a lot of deals with him, but... I always go back to my first year on the beat, which was 2006 and the Dion Branch situation, which we all thought at the time would get worked out. Right. And it did not. So you just you yeah. never know. You never know how it's going to go with the player, even if they really need the player. Keeping it on defense, because I think that's really where they spent the most money. And I know the tight ends, obviously, Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith and Nelson Aguilar. But Judon was a very impressive signing and, and Jalen Mills as well. And Godshaw and, and what they were able to do on defense. The biggest surprise to me last year about this team defensively, Doug, was their difficulty stopping the run. The Patriots dropped from 6 to 26 in the NFL in rush defense last season. They allowed 131.4 yards per game. That was the third highest of the Bill Belichick era. They allowed 4.5 yards per rush, and six times last season, there were games where they allowed a team to rush for more than five yards per carry. When you look at this defense this year, do you think they'll be better against the run? And even though we're looking at some of the moves they've made again, like Judon and obviously Dante Hightower coming back and saying pass rush, pass rush, pass rush. Is it really more about setting the edge and being stout against the run? I think it is. And I mean, last year, they really let themselves get in a bind in their front seven. You were talking about players like Nick Thurman getting a lot of playing time. Um, Akeem Spence was in there at the end. Like It got ugly. And I think that they didn't plan well enough at that nose tackle position. They obviously signed Bo Allen. That didn't work out, but they didn't have that backup who could eat up space in the middle. And then you had, you know, six foot three, 290 pound Byron Cower trying to take on double teams in the middle of their defense. And it just didn't work out. So I think that we've seen this in the past, actually with the Patriots at running back, where if in the year prior, they let themselves get way too shallow at running back and Cordero Patterson is playing back there, or if Steven Jackson has to be brought in, then they overcompensate and say, okay, we're going to sign all of the running backs. And this year, that was kind of the case at defensive tackle, right? Because they did bring in Godshaw. Uh, they brought in Montrevious Adams, who's looked pretty good during many camp and OTAs. They brought in Henry Anderson. They drafted Christian Barmore, brought back Lawrence Guy. They really completely reshaped that group. So if you're talking about the difference between, you know, Nick Thurman and all Carl Davis, these guys who were playing significant snaps last year, and now they actually have legitimate NFL players in the middle of their defense. That's a major boost. I also think that obviously Kyle Van Noy and Matt Judon probably just as good against the run as they are as pure pass rushers. Those aren't guys who are putting up 
12 and a half sack seasons. These are complete defenders who can set the edge against the run, can be trusted in that role, and then in the right situations can put up some pretty decent pressure stats. And then you throw in guys like Josh Uche, who's more of a situational pass rusher, Chase Winovich, who was the best pass rusher on the Patriots last year, and now has become kind of a forgotten man in this defense. I do think that they've put enough pieces into this defense. They've invested enough money. They've invested enough in the run defense that I think that you will see a significant difference. I know that it sounds like I'm being ultra positive about this team, but when you're coming off a seven and nine season where Therese Hall was playing significant (laughs) snaps, I hate to throw these guys under the bus, but like when you're talking about, the guys who were playing on defense last year, Shalik Calhoun and Tashawn Bauer, it was just as bad in the front seven as it was at wide receiver last season. And now they really have upgraded that group so significantly, not just in getting Dante Hightower back, but also in the players that they've signed and, and acquired in the draft. You know, mentioned Winovich there. I want to ask you about him. Mm-hmm. What's his role in this team? I saw you did a roster breakdown on yeah. Nesson.com and a lot of people look at him and think, man, that's a guy that might not make this team. So within the context of talking about Chase Winovich, uh, what do you think his future is? And give me a surprise cut, you think, maybe when it's all said and done from this team. Because there's a couple of high draft picks, as you pointed out, you know, Nikhil Harry, Sony Michelle in the last year of his contract, Anthony Jennings, who was a third round pick in the second year, and then Chase Winovich, also a third round pick going into his third year, who might not make this team. I think that Winovich is interesting. I'm actually uh, writing this in my mailbag right now is that the one thing that I think we all kind of forget about Chase Winovich is his value on special teams. I know that this is a very Bill Belichick answer, but in his rookie season, Chase Winovich was fourth on the Patriots in special team snaps. Last season, he was fifth on the Patriots in special team snaps. And the only reason they was fifth is because Jake Bailey was on the field so much that he actually passed him in special team snaps last season. But ultimately, if you only look at Chase Winovich's defensive role, like we were talking about, they brought in Matt Judon, they brought in Kyle Van Noy, they drafted Ronnie Perkins, Josh Uche could take on a much bigger role, Anthony Jennings still in the mix. So he might be a little bit buried there at an outside linebacker, defensive end edge, but If you throw in his special teams value, I just feel like having Chase Winovich on your team is better than not having him on your team. And I'm not sure what exactly you could get for him in a trade if something does happen with Stephon Gilmore. And if he's traded or whatever happens with him, and if they really need a starting caliber cornerback, maybe you could flip Chase Winovich for that type of player just because of his his special teams prowess, his upside in that role. But ultimately, I think that he winds up on this team as far as the surprise cut goes, there's there's a lot of options. Like you or, or surprise trade too. Let me throw because the trade is I mean, these right. guys have value. So let me throw Absolutely. trade in there too if that helps. If that makes it easier for you, I think that the names that you have to look at, Winovich is certainly one of them. Uh, like you said, Sony Michelle at, at running back because if they keep Brandon Bolden, then someone else, whether it's JJ Taylor or Sony Michelle. Uh, you know, I don't think James White or Ramondre Stevenson or Damian Harris are going anywhere. So one of those guys could be left off the roster at wide receiver and Keel Harry, definitely a, a trade possibility at tight end. Devin Ossiasi and Dalton Keene could be left off the roster. Um, and then Anthony Jennings, Joan Williams. I'm not sure who would be the biggest surprise. I think that all of those guys are definitely in the mix. I would say Nikhil Harry, though. Let's just put Nikhil Harry out there and talk about him for a second, because I don't think that he's taken. He's never taken that next step that's required. And now I know that people have put it out there that the Patriots still have confidence in Nikhil Harry, that they still believe in him. 
well, if they still believe in him, if they still have confidence in them, then why did they sign Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne? And why did they let Jacoby Myers pass him on the depth chart last year? At the very highest, you're looking at Nikhil Harris being the fourth wide receiver on the Patriots. And if they think that Trey Nixon or Isaiah Zuber or um, you know someone else in that mix could provide more special teams value or could do what Nikhil Harry does better than Nikhil Harry, I definitely think that he could be a, a trade candidate. If they think that he just simply needs a fresh start somewhere, then yeah, they might just give it to him and roll with Zuber or Trey Nixon or one of those other guys. Wow, that would be yeah, that would sting. It's already been tough to watch some of the receivers taken after Nikhil Harry have a ton of success. Guys like DK Metcalf and yep. AJ Brown, Terry McLaurin, Debo Samuel. But if man, if he were out after basically two seasons here, uh, that would be difficult to stomach. Speaking of being out, one of the most enigmatic, but also most important members of the Patriots organization is now out, and that is Ernie Adams. And I've always described Ernie Adams as not only Belichick's aide de camp, but basically Belichick's Belichick. When Bill Belichick needs a football genius to go to, to lean on, to be able to uh, confide in and to be able to bounce things off, he goes to Ernie Adams. I think those two guys are sort of joined at the hip. So I want to ask you this, and I also want to bring in producer Ellen Fleming, who is frankly the Ernie Adams of this podcast. What kind of impact will it have on Bill Belichick now losing Ernie Adams? And and you look at it and you say, back-to-back off seasons, you lose Tom Brady, who's your partner in success, and then Ernie Adams. Those are two huge parts of Bill Belichick's success and legacy in New England. You could throw even, I know it's to a lesser degree, but you could throw Nick Casario in there as well. Nick Casario's out now too. He was kind of in Josh McDaniel's year, maybe more than Bill Belichick's. But I think that in taking Ernie Adams out, you take a voice that Bill Belichick probably respected more than anyone else in that building. And maybe someone who could, you know, disagree with Bill Belichick or, or had that power, had that gravitas that these guys were friends 50 years ago. And obviously Bill Belichick has ascended up to heights higher than, than Ernie Adams. But I think that it still does just go back to that, that high school friendship where they're the same age. They've known each other for so long. They've come up together that that's ultimately what you lose. And if you're replacing Ernie Adams with say Matt Patricia, who appears like he might be in that more in that Ernie Adams role this season, Matt Patricia owes his success to Bill Belichick. And that's just significantly different to me than this guy, Ernie Adams, who never really probably had anything to lose by disagreeing with Bill Belichick. Matt Patricia just comes at it from a different angle. And I know that he comes with the respect of being a head coach and leading a team and all those things, but it's just, it's simply not the same to me. Yeah. I just feel like this will be an absolutely huge detriment to not only Bill Belichick as a coach, but to Bill Belichick's ego check and how, you know, it's one of those things, even if you get promoted in a job, if you're working alongside who was your old boss, you are always going to be a little step below that person because they're the ones who got you there. I just feel like if Bill Belichick right now, I'm just thinking like if he had an aim profile, like his away message would be like everyone leaves. And like, what (laughs) is he going to do? Like, what is he going to do? Everyone he is, I'm not going to say made successful, but aided in their success has left. And yes, Matt Patricia is coming back, but he did leave and he would leave again. I don't think he has that kind of loyalty. Also, I'm just like excited to know that Ernie hasn't changed his glasses. I've been looking at photos and videos of over the past like 40 years and his glasses have remained the same. So that's, you know, some things do remain the same. 
So how do you feel about being compared to Ernie Adams? Because I say you're the Ernie Adams of this podcast, although you're a little more front and center than Ernie. Ernie did do a going away press meeting with all of us the other day on Zoom. But I can tell you, I remember I don't remember the year, but I remember chasing Ernie Adams through a hallway in Indianapolis at the old RCA dome. It connected to the hotels, just trying to get him to like answer a question. And it was like, this guy's like, it's like trying to catch James Bond or like trying to track down. It's like trying to, you know, track down Jason Bourne or something <laughs> like that. I mean, he was that enigmatic and that mysterious. So how do you feel about being compared to him? Now? I feel like it's an extremely poor comparison because okay. I am here. I'm thirsty. You need me. I'm there. I got you. But the <laughs> only thing I will say is he was quoted as saying, like, like, what does he even do? What is his job? And his job was like. I'm here to win football games. Like, yeah. whatever that means, yeah. I'm here to win football games. And Chris has asked me many times, like, what is your job here at WCVB? And I'm like, whatever they tell me. So in that, go. I understand. But I would, you know, take the limelight at any point. That's true. That is where <laughs> that is where you and Ernie differ. But I can tell you, like, if there's something involved with this podcast, Doug, that has to do with technology or whatever, mm-hmm. and you see me doing it, or if you see me do something on Instagram... That wasn't really me. That was Ellen <laughs> telling me to do it and telling me how to do it. So that might be a little bit like Bill and Ernie, where Ernie says, hey, Bill, yeah. challenge this play. We're going to win this right. challenge. And you see Belichick's the one who pulls the challenge flag out of the sock. But it was yeah. really Ernie in the background with the puppet strings. Well, that's me. Ellen has the puppet strings on me. <laughs> and the best, the best. See, Ernie is smart because like me and Ernie. Yeah. We're not the ones who will ever get in trouble. That's true. Right. That's a good right. point. Bill Belichick is the one to get in trouble and Chris will be. be the one to get in trouble. That is actually really smart. That is really smart. Yeah. You have all the power, but you don't have any of the responsibility yeah. or blame. Exactly. Yeah, when I think about it, that makes Ernie even more of a genius. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so segueing out of Ernie Adams, which is really interesting here, I want to ask you about something you and I talked about a little bit online, mm-hmm. and that's what the Patriots identity will be offensively. They obviously invested very heavily in these two tight ends, Doug, Jonu Smith, and Hunter Henry. And I know you wrote a piece that I thought was really interesting with a lot of the numbers about how little they've been two tight ends and how much they can be two tight ends and how effective a two tight end offense would be. So when you look at the Patriots, do you think they can build this offense around the two tight ends? And do you think that a two tight end setup can compensate for really not having a wide receiver one. Cause I don't think Aguilar is a true number one wide receiver. Yeah, I would agree with that. I actually think that at the end of the day, Jacoby Myers might wind up being the Patriots number one wide receiver this season. Um, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there by saying that, but he just looked the best in camp. I think that you can, I think having two tight ends and running a two tight end system can compensate a little bit for a lack of wide receiver depth and a lack of quarterback play and maybe some lack of of running back just because of the unpredictability that comes with it. And unpredictability is a major part of football. Last season, when the Patriots had Jakob Johnson on the field and 21 personnel with two running backs, they ran the ball 69% uh, of the time. And when the Patriots were in 11 personnel with three wide receivers, they passed the ball 61% of the time. (laughs) So the opposing defenses had a pretty good idea of what they were doing if they were bringing Jakob Johnson on the field or if they were putting Nikhil Harry back on the field. You know, that's a big part of football. This season, you would assume that the majority of their offensive snaps, maybe even up to 70, 80%, will be coming with those two tight ends on the field because I don't think that you want to pay them $12.5 million to only have one, one of them on the field at a time. 
So that is unpredictability. The, uh, the opposing defense is not going to know whether the Patriots are going to run the ball or pass the ball when they are in those two tight end sets. And obviously they become a little bit more predictable when they add a third tight end or when they take one of those tight ends off the field. But I think that that is really the major advantage. And the other advantage is simply the fact that the Patriots might be the only team that's doing this in 2021. No one else was running this many two tight end sets in the past three seasons. I think that it topped out at around like 55%, 58%. I forgot what it was, uh, but yeah, I think it was like the Eagles in 2019. That would make sense, 2019 Eagles with with Ertz and and Goddard, and that was a team that was a little wide receiver deficient. I was going to guess them or Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. Tennessee last year was over 50%, but it was just a slightly over 50%. I think that maybe in 2020 there were, it was, yeah, it's, it's always been around 50%. And now you're talking about the Patriots who might be around 70%. And that also changes the way that opposing defenses have to match up against the Patriots as well, because defenses are getting much smaller, more defensive backs on the field, smaller linebackers. We saw it a lot with the Patriots, actually. Adrian in Phillips. 2020. Yeah, Adrian Phillips was a linebacker last season. They were in dime and quarters. They were barely even in, in nickel last season. I'm not sure if they ran a single snap in base the entire season. Wow. So now when you're asking defenses who have acquired all these smaller linebackers and more cornerbacks, more safeties to suddenly match up, against a two tight end offense, then they might have to be pulling backups uh, off their bench. They they might have to really adjust the way that they play against the Patriots. So I'm not sure if it does completely compensate for the lack of depth at wide receiver. It does help that you only have to put two of them on the field. And I don't think, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, the Patriots still do have one of the best pass catching cores in the NFL. But with the unpredictability, with the fact that defenses now have to adjust to something completely new, I think that does push it a little bit more in the Patriots' favor of running a different offense than the rest of the teams in the NFL. Yeah, I do think it's an example of them choosing to zig when everybody else zags. And you're, you're dead on about you know nickel or even dime being the new base. I guess my question about it is... How good are Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry? You know, I just don't think either one of those guys rises to the level of a Gronk in his prime, Mm -hmm. a George Kittle or Travis Kelsey. And I think that's what you sort of need to build your offense around tight ends. Or I should back that up. That's what you need to build your passing attack. So I think the greatest advantage of this will be in the run game where they were very good last year, fourth in the league in rushing. And I think they could be even better. And I see the advantages there. And I think back to the heyday of Rob Gronkowski and and the late Aaron Hernandez. And what I used to say about that was the Patriots, and they go no huddle and they do this, what they could do was change formation without changing personnel. So they have the two tight ends in there, but Hernandez, now he's in the backfield. Now he's split out wide, basically like a wide receiver. Now he's lined up in the slot like a wide receiver. Now he's in tight like a tight end. So you're getting all these different formations and different keys but the personnel's not changing, so you're not subbing out personnel on defense. You can't because they're going no huddle. So that's the real advantage. I think it's a great advantage for the Patriots and Josh McDaniels from a chess piece situation. But I think that Hernandez and Gronkowski are better to me than Smith for sure. and Henry. You know, those are two guys that haven't had 700 yard rec- 700 yards receiving in a season. So it sort of remains to be seen. And we, you mentioned that Eagles team, and that's sort of what gives me a little bit of pause. Now, the mm-hmm. good news, if you're a Patriots fan, the 2019 Eagles, they made the playoffs. Right. Um, they won a very weak NFC East at nine and seven. The bad news is 
when you played them and other teams played them that year, the Patriots beat them 17 to 10. Goddard and Ertz were the two guys for them. And they held the Eagles to 255 yards of offense. Right. I think that even within that unpredictability, there is some predictability which enables you to slow down tight ends who just normally are not as dynamic as receivers. And that's sort of my concern. That Eagles passing game was actually pretty good. I think it was 11th in the NFL. But I will say this, Doug, and you haven't said this to me, but I've had some fans on Twitter say to me, well, the Patriots will be better than that Eagles team. They have better receivers. And I I have to remind them, who was the number one receiver on that Eagles team? Yeah. Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar. So it's the yeah. same guy. So I, I just have some questions about, I think conceptually, strategically, it makes all the sense in the world, but there does become a point for me where it's not as much about the X's and O's. It's about the Jimmy's and Joe's. And I think Henry and Smith are good. I just don't know if either one of them can take that step to go from good to very good or elite. Yeah. I think that I mean, first of all, I think that after last season, the Patriots would probably happily accept being the the 11th best passing. Yeah, offense that's in the true. NFL. Yeah. You're um, right. But and this just sounds like I'm I'm kind of being a homer or, you know, pushing the Patriots or whatever it is. I will say that with Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, they're not Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. Obviously, no one is. But I do think that both of them are more balanced players than someone like Zach Ertz. Zach Ertz, I think, is sort of a glorified big slot. Got He's it. not really helping out that much in the in the running game. He doesn't give, you know, he, he's not really that type of player. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the Patriots will be able to keep Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry, Hunter Henry on the field more than Goddard and Ertz shared the field back in 2019, just because they are both bigger players. They are both better blocking tight ends, more complete players than a player like Zach Ertz. That being said, Zach Ertz is a better receiver than either one of them. So, you know, that comes with its its advantages as well. And even a guy like Aaron Hernandez, he might not have been quite as good of a blocker as Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry, but he was also a much more dynamic player and a much better receiver. So I actually don't even know how many yards Smith and Henry will put up this season. I wouldn't be surprised if they put up 600 yards or whatever it is. But if they do, then you also need to see Jacoby Myers and Nelson Aguilar put up six, 700 yards. You need to see Kendrick Bourne get 500 yards. It really has to be an offense where you spread the ball around as much as possible. And I'm interested to see how they use Johnny Smith. He was mostly an inline tight end with the Titans, but he's also, he also can line up in the backfield. He also can line up in the slot. It's an interesting dynamic because Smith, is both the better blocker than Hunter Henry, but also the more versatile player and also the more athletic player. Whereas Hunter Henry, you might wonder, okay, then what is Hunter Henry? He's the better pass catcher. He's the more experienced pass catcher. He's the guy who can line up in the slot or out wide. He can be a red zone threat. But Smith is really an interesting player in that he is more athletic. He is more versatile, but he's also the better blocker. So you might see him in line on one snap, but also lining up in the backfield on the next snap. It'll be really interesting to see how they move him around. Well, I'll tell you, this is this is for sure. They're going to be better at tight end than they've been the last two years when, <laughs> yes. when they had the fewest targets to tight ends in the NFL. They'll definitely be better. I don't know how much better. I think what you're hoping for is one of these guys basically has a 
a Wes Welker-like emergence here. And I'm not saying yeah. putting up the same numbers, but here's right. a guy that you put in your system and he really pops and becomes sort of a perennial pro bowler. I have to say this is an unfair comparison, and, and you rightfully so called me out on it. But my <laughs> first year on the beat was 2006, and I was just, I'm just scarred by the fact that I remember all year long we wrote stories and the team was pumping that Benjamin Watson, who I love dearly, great guy, one of the most athletic tight ends in the history yeah. of the league, just ask Champ Bailey. But they were basically like, we're going to not have a number one receiver because Deion Branch is gone now. And we're going to replace that production with Benjamin Watson and Daniel Graham, who was maybe the best blocking tight end other than Gronk the Patriots have ever had, or at least during the Belichick era. And it just didn't work. Like Tom had to work so hard. But to your point, and others have pointed it out, these tight ends are better. The pass catchers are better. And it might be a little bit of an unfair comparison, but I'm not going to lie to you. That's stuck in the back of my head where it's like, I've heard this story before right. and it, it didn't end well. I mean, they made it to the AFC Championship game, so it wasn't like it was a bust of a season. But Tom had to work so hard that year, and it's just difficult to replace that production, which leads me to at least my final point, Doug, which is I still would not be surprised if somewhere between now and the end of this season – the Patriots add another receiver. And I don't think it's going to be a big name guy like Odell Beckham Jr. We obviously saw Julio Jones go to Tennessee. But I would keep an eye on the Arizona Cardinals and maybe a guy like Christian Kirk. Maybe there's a deal to be made there that involves Nikhil Harry or Sony Michelle. The Cardinals lost Kenyon Drake. They, they're not great at running back under, other than Chase Edmonds. Um, Christian Kirk's in the last year of his deal. They went out and drafted Rondale Moore and signed A.J. Green. Maybe they're willing to move on from Christian Kirk. And that was a guy the Patriots really liked coming out of the draft. Also, Nikhil Harry from Arizona. And this is maybe a little bit of a stretch. But again, the Cardinals are not great at tight end. And some people feel like Nikhil Harry is maybe better off as sort of a hybrid tight end wide receiver type guy. So maybe there's a deal to be made there between Steve Keim and Bill Belichick where okay, we send you our disappointing draft pick or draft picks, mm -hmm. and you send us a guy you're not enamored of. I still think there has to be one more wide receiver here. That's just me. Yeah, I mean, the Cardinals are interesting also with that Nikhil Harry point because, I mean, Dan Arnold, who was their tight end last season, is was a pretty undersized guy. I think that he was a wide receiver in college. I think he's only about 240 or something like that. So if they're willing to put a smaller tight end on the field, then yeah, they could look at Nikhil Harry as someone that they could convert. I think they might've also been the team that tried to convert Hakeem Butler to tight end. So Good point. I don't think that they necessarily need someone to be the, the biggest guy or the best blocker in that role. And yeah, I mean, if you look at the Patriots roster, the top four wide receiver are pretty much set. You've got Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, uh, Jacoby Myers, and then Gunnar Olszewski, who's maybe not necessarily a wide receiver, but a guy who can play wide receiver and is the, the top punt returner. But then if you're talking about that fifth spot that's coming down between Nikhil Harry, who's been a disappointment, Christian Wilkerson, who was an undrafted free agent last year, Isaiah Zuber, who was on the practice squad last year, Trey Nixon, who was a seventh round pick, Devin Smith, Marvin Hall, like, you don't, there's not, it's not solid enough. And if one of those top three guys goes down, then you're talking about two of those guys making the roster, which is definitely not a place that you necessarily want to be. So I do think that they need one more body at that wide receiver spot. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, in a trade, I think that Christian Kirk would be a, a great fit. Andy Isabella, another guy with the Cardinals who could potentially be moved. You like, 
Golden Tate, who's still available in free agency. He would kind of be that that typical veteran wide receiver who comes to the Patriots and doesn't make the team. Um, the you know the the, uh, the Tory Holt, Holt or the, um, <laughs> Reggie Wayne, Reggie Wayne, Michael Jenkins, <laughs> Nate Washington. There's like too many of them that we could possibly even name at this point. I feel like he would be that 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 prototypical guy. But yeah, I think that before camp opens, maybe or like you said, before the season ends bring someone else in just so that they have a little bit more certainty. Because also if one of those top two tight ends goes down, Ooh. then you have to all of a sudden run 11 personnel most of the time, because I don't think that you want to replace them with Devin Ossie or Ossie Ossie or Dalton Keene. You probably want to replace them with a wide receiver. So definitely a spot that, that still has some need. I'd say that wide receiver and probably cornerback as well, because if you get beyond Stefan Gilmore and you're talking about Jalen Mills being a starting cornerback or Joan Williams or or uh, Mike Jackson Sr., that's not really a spot that you want to be in as well. Last question for you. We'll wrap it up with this. I know that predictions are an occupational hazard in this industry, (laughs) and we're not even, we're a month out from training camp. But give me a record for the Patriots this season in the 17-game season. I'll say 11-6. and I know that that um, might be optimistic since they only won seven games last season, but I really think that really from top to bottom, they either stayed the same at every position or got significantly better. So, you know, 11 and six seems pretty fair for me. All right. That's Doug Kide of Nesson and Nesson.com. You're going to want to check him out. He's a great source for Patriots information. He's one of my go-tos for Patriots information. If you want to just get quick downloads and some in-depth stuff, he's very, very good. And he joins us here on the Take 5 podcast. Doug, thanks for the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Take 5 Podcast. We appreciate it as always. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast so others can find it and enjoy it. And now you can email us at take5 at wcvb.com. We'd love to get your feedback and hear your thoughts. We'll catch you next time.